Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, the writer writes, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people." saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer, often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Sometimes we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the book in in order to understand the context where we are. At the end of chapter 9. Remember that the theme of the book of Hebrews. Is the priesthood of Christ. This is the big message of this book. That you have access to God through Christ. 
In the ninth chapter of Hebrews, we were given a glimpse of the inferiority of the old sanctuary as compared to the superiority of the new sanctuary. In the first part of the chapter, we discovered, number one, that the old covenant sanctuary is worldly. In other words, there's a contrast and a comparison. There was a sanctuary on the earth, the Jewish tabernacle, and then the temple, and then there is the new sanctuary in the, in the new heaven. The old covenant sanctuary is worldly of this earth. The old covenant sanctuary is a mere shadow of the things to come in verses 2 through 5. The old covenant sanctuary had a very limited access to the people in verses 6 and 7. The old covenant sanctuary was temporary in verse 8. The old covenant sanctuary was ineffective in changing our heart in verses 9 and 10. And now the author is going to explain the superiority of the sanctuary under the new covenant. It is, number one, superior in its location, verse 11. Superior in its ability to to really change lives. That's number two in verses 12 through 23. It's superior in its substance because it is the substance over the shadow in verse 24. And because it is based on a completed sacrifice, a permanent sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice in verses 25 through 28. So, the theme The priesthood of Jesus. And in this chapter, we come right into the heart of the theme because the author takes us on a journey and gives us a glimpse into heaven and heaven's worship. In heaven, we have a perfect priest who has made a perfect sacrifice once forever. And so we see the new covenant sanctuary. It's more effective in its location in verse 11. It says in verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Remember earlier, old tabernacle? Even though it was given by revelation of God to Moses, and even though God is the architect of the old tabernacle and the old temple, it becomes a replica, if you will, a type, a picture of life in heaven. And when you begin in verse 9, 11, but Christ, it's in contrast to everything that we've already read in verses 1 through 10. I've said euphemistically that maybe someday someone will write a book entitled The Great Butts of the Bible. And the reason this becomes such an important point is because throughout the New Testament, the Bible will describe certain things in lives, but then it will contrast it with what God has done. But Christ came as high priest. The contrast, of course, being... There were old priests and an old high priest. Earlier, again, the author shared the deficiencies and the limitations of the old covenant sanctuary. It was of this world, verse 1. A shadow, verses 2 through 5. Limited access to God for the people of God, verses 6 and 7. Temporary, verse 8. Ineffective in producing a change of heart. 
in verses 9 and 10. The author's offering at least four reasons why the heavenly sanctuary is superior. Number one, the person offering the sacrifice. It's Jesus. We're going to find that out in verse 12. The preciousness of the sacrifice. Jesus offers his blood in verse 12. The permanence of the sacrifice. Done once and for all. Look again in verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The power of the sacrifice. It brings about eternal redemption at the end of verse 12. And then we're going to see that again in verses 13, 14, and 15. So again, pause for just a moment. Because in that one little verse in verse 12, there is so much. The person offering the sacrifice, Jesus. The preciousness of the sacrifice, his blood. The permanence of the sacrifice once for all. The power of the sacrifice. It brings about eternal redemption, not temporary redemption, not probationary redemption. What is the singular thing that differentiates the old covenant from the new covenant? It's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the singular thing That differentiates the old covenant. But Christ came as high priest. Of the good things to come. In what sense? In the fact that God is going to bring about maturation. Fruition. The culmination of his revelation. In the person of Jesus. And so again he begins by saying. It used to be that worship took place in type and in shadow on the earth. But a real Jesus has gone to a real heaven. And so again, that's the contrast. Realtors will tell you. It's about location, location, location. And so again, remember, remember what the text is doing it's talking about the superiority of christ and then the new covenant priests more effective in changing lives not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption one of each goat calf was sacrificed on the day of atonement And by the way, the Old Testament talks about this in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 10. Another translation translates verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. What does that mean? It's repeated again in in chapter 13, verse 12. In chapter 13, verse 12, we read, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, is the way that it it translates in the Greek. Why is that important? I think it's important because the point of the passage isn't that 
that a, that a resurrected Jesus takes resurrected blood and he puts it in this sanctuary. I think that there's something way more important taking place. The point of the passage is that Jesus is the sacrifice. The sacrifice once for all that took place on the planet earth. He enters once for all having obtained eternal redemption. And by the way that phrase is found only here and again in Luke chapter 1 verse 68 and verse 2 verse verse 38. The term redemption in the New Testament it referred to the act of purchasing slaves through the payment of a ransom the idea being that human beings were in bondage to sin and that a real Jesus having obtained eternal redemption bought us back from the slave market of sin it is an eternal redemption in the fact that the redemption takes place that and it's good forever it says in verse 13 for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh and he'll go on in just a moment But what the writer does is he makes a reference to the elaborate rituals that were required for cleansing. Here's part of the point. The death of Jesus was necessary to fulfill the old covenant. And then it was necessary to establish the new covenant. And so when he says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. What is the significance? We've talked over and over again about the sacrifices that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus over and over again I've told you that if you want to know more about the significance of the sacrifices go to the book of Leviticus chapter oh um, well beginning in chapter 3 and chapter 4 but there you'll learn about the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering All of these offerings became types and pictures of the permanent offering of Jesus. And then he will talk about, and the ashes of a heifer. What's the significance of the ashes of the heifer? That particular thing is found in Numbers chapter 19. John MacArthur writes, quote, it is said that In the history of Israel, only six red heifers were killed and their ashes used. One heifer's ashes would suffice for centuries since only a minute amount of the ash was required. In the law, let me help you understand. In the law, there were several things that would render a person unclean. You have probably read through the Old Testament. And as you're reading through the Old Testament, you find out all kinds of different activities that render a person ceremonially unclean. Let me give you an example. If an Israelite touched a dead body, it would render them unclean for seven days. And the remedy for this uncleanliness, if you will, was to mix the ashes of the heifer with pure spring water. So they would take this red heifer's ashes that had been immolated. That means it had been burnt, burnt, burnt. 
I'm trying to use an example that won't sound too gross or too crass. Some of you understand about the cremation process. And when a human body is cremated, it's blasted at high temperatures and it's reduced to ash. And that's exactly what they would do with this heifer. They would reduce it to ash and then they would use the ashes. They would mix it with pure water, sprinkle it on the person on the third day and the seventh day. When they did that, the person became clean. One Bible writer says, the ashes were regarded as a concentration of the essential properties of the sin offering and could be resorted to at all times with comparatively little trouble and no loss of time. And then he writes, one red heifer availed for centuries. And I think that that's where MacArthur got his information from a guy named Mantle. Many people are put off by this concept of blood sacrifice. I had a person come into my office and he goes, you know what, I want to know more about Christianity and I want to know more about Christ and I want to know more about all of that stuff. But this whole blood thing, this whole sacrifice business, this whole dying, I don't necessarily get it. And as you can imagine, for for many people, this whole idea of blood... At best, they find it bizarre. At worst, they find it repulsive. They go, why is your religion such a bloody religion? Why does it require so much spilling of blood? But the Bible answer is very, very clear. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says that the life is in the blood. And so in order to understand this, Let me help you, because in the very next verse, this is the contrast that the writer of Hebrews himself will make. How much more, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is the author saying? If the blood of bulls and goats could cover sin if the ashes of a red heifer had the power to cleanse the most serious outward defilements how much more powerful is the blood of Jesus to cleanse not just simply on the outside but on the inside I I want you to think this through In the ancient world of the Jewish person, are there lots of things that could make them defiled, that could make them unclean? The answer is yes. You touch a dead body or any dead thing, you're rendered unclean. If a woman is going through that time of the month, it renders her unclean. If you do certain things or certain acts, you're rendered unclean. We walk through this life. We walk through the very real world in which you live. You look, turn on the radio. You turn on the television. You, you walk into a grocery store. You drive down a road. Are there things that defile us on the outside? We're walking through life. We seem to be minding our own business. But there, there are little dirty things that we accumulate over the course. And so here, part of the point is that Jesus doesn't have simply the ability to, to cleanse the defilements that take place on the outside. But to, def, to, to cleanse the things that are on the inside of our heart. The things that 
that no matter what you do or, or no matter what efforts you make, there is this sense of dirtiness and filthiness that sometimes occupies our heart. And so this particular writer is making it abundantly clear that a very real Jesus is able to cleanse you. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. Why is this important? Because remember the argument that the writer of Hebrews has been making for the person who is religiously inclined, ceremonially inclined, who, who might light a candle, who might receive ashes on their forehead, who might go through some sort of religious ritual. They're trying to change the things on the external, but there's no change that's taken place on the internal. And so that's what he's talking about. The deep personal change. So what does he mean when he talks about this eternal spirit? What is the meaning of eternal spirit? Different people have come to different conclusions. Is this a reference to a willing spirit? In other words, some Bible teachers and some Bible writers have come to a conclusion that really what's being spoken of here isn't the Holy Spirit, but rather a willing spirit. In what sense? How many of the sacrifices that took place in the Levitical law under the Mosaic economy, how many of the, the, the bulls and the goats, how many of the sacrifices... Is it like Dr. Doolittle? Did the animals come to them and say, I'll be the sacrifice, I'll be the sacrifice, I'll be a willing sacrifice? Were all of the animals, any of the animals, a willing sacrifice? The answer is no. Is Jesus a willing sacrifice? Is he willing to give himself? Is he willing to go? And so the contrast might be between Innocent and unwilling, and innocent and willing. Sacrifices take two forms, willing and unwilling. That's a possibility. Is this a reference to the Holy Spirit? That is, Jesus made his sacrifice in the power of an eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, who strengthens him for the task at hand in order to be the sacrifice. Whatever it means, is Jesus strengthened by the Holy Spirit, an eternal spirit? The answer is yes. Is Jesus innocent, spotless, sinless? Is he, like John would say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That's part of the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, that he is qualified to be our sin bearer. The blood is innocent, without spot to God. The blood is applied through the eternal spirit. The blood wasn't simply shed to cleanse your conscience from dead works. In what sense? The blood is shed to cleanse your conscience from dead works in what sense? Could religious rituals and religion in general make the sin inside of you go away? No. That's the point that he's making. But then look what else he says. Does Jesus die simply so that your conscience gets cleansed? 
No, but to serve the living God. You see, you've got two things going for you. Not only do you get the benefit of a cleansed conscience, you get the opportunity to serve the true and the living God. In what way? By acts of kindness, by acts of grace, by acts of mercy, by acts of generosity. In other words, all of the things that the Bible talks about, being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, loving each other, providing for one another, encouraging one another, being there for one another. And so the blood wasn't simply shed to cleanse your conscience, but to serve the Lord. And in verse 15 it says, and for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. Note what the author says, and for this reason, what reason? So that your conscience could be cleansed. For what other reason? So that you would be able to serve the living God. He is the mediator of the new covenant. Just pause for a moment. Who's the mediator of the old covenant? Moses and the law. Moses is the mediator. He receives the law from God. He imparts it to the people. Who is the audience in this book? It's Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians, Hebrew Christians who are experiencing pain and suffering and persecution. Hebrew Christians who are living in doubt and difficulty. Hebrew Christians who are wondering whether or not it's worth it to be a Christian. Hebrew Christians who are thinking about going back to the old covenant and the old mediator. And so the writer says, for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. Is he suggesting that Moses is a bad mediator? Or even that that Moses misrepresented what God would have under the old jurisdiction and the old covenant? That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is, and for this reason, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In this single verse, in this single verse, you could spend a lifetime of reflection, meditation, constant comfort. Let me just draw just a couple of quick things from it. Number one. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Number two, the saints are the recipients of an eternal inheritance. Number three, those under the old covenant could receive forgiveness. Look look for yourself. Especially for the person who says, wait, wait, I have a question. How were people saved under the old covenant? In the old dispensation. How did people have a right relationship with God? And remember what I've constantly told you. Whether you begin with Adam. Whether you continue through Enoch and Noah. Whether you continue going forward with Abraham. As you march forward with Isaac and Jacob. And Judah and his brothers and Joseph. 
the, the, the reality of, of what it means to be a nation in Egypt, their deliverance out of Egypt, you go through every phase, every circumstance, every circumstance, and you're going to discover something, that salvation has always been by grace. It has always been by faith. It has always been through blood. And so when it says Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, it's in contrast with Moses. When it says that the saints are the recipients of an eternal inheritance, what does that mean? For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions, not under the second covenant or the new covenant, but for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. It was always God's plan. That Moses would not be the final mediator. That there would be another prophet who would come. Another sacrifice. The real Messiah. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could only offer a temporary solution to the problem of sin, the passage reminds us that Jesus, as it said earlier in chapter 7 verse 22, has become the guarantor or the guarantee of a better covenant. So what is the author saying? By saying, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Again, he's begging them. He's pleading with them. He's reminding them. Why would you want to have a substandard mediator? Why would you want to have anyone as the go-between between you and God? That's why later he's going to say there's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. You have not limited, but unlimited access through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant... Remember what redemption means? It means to buy back from the marketplace of sin. Paul will make a compelling argument in the New Testament that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous, that we've all been sold under sin, that we are all slaves, if you will, in a marketplace of a broken world in which we live. And so Jesus sees you in your sin and in your brokenness, in your wickedness, in your inability to save yourself. Has it always been true from the time that Adam and Eve fell Till the time that Jesus comes, have human beings, even now, has it always been true that human beings are broken and hurt and they need a savior? That's part of the point. And so we've talked about it. How were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they're saved in the New Testament. What do you mean? The people in the Old Testament would have to look forward to God providing a solution in the person of the Messiah and keeping his promise, we look back on the very real sacrifice that Jesus has made. And those that are called may receive the eternal inheritance. Who are the called? The elect. Who can receive the promise of the eternal inheritance? Everyone who responds in faith. Salvation was to be brought for those who were waiting for the Messiah. Well, what did it mean to wait for God's Messiah? 
Remember, for the Jewish person who was waiting for God's Messiah, they were waiting to be bought back. They were waiting in the hopes that when they were bought back, they would experience forgiveness. They would experience hope. This goes back to the very first promise given in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, where God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You'll remember, at the fall, something happened that humanity became broken. It would initiate a cosmic conflict between Satan... There would be a battle that would be fought between Satan and the seed of the woman. A battle would have to take place. Another promise was given to Abraham. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, it says in Genesis 22, 18. What kind of a blessing is he talking about? Is he saying, you know what, through your... Many people have misinterpreted the passage. Well, do you realize that through, um, through your... Your offspring, all the nations, will be blessed. You mean more Jews will receive the Nobel Prize or, or Nobel Prizes than any other group in history? Well, it's true that more Jews have received more Nobel Prizes. So is he talking about the intellectual contributions of Jewish people, social contributions, philosophical contributions, inventions? Is that what he's talking about? The answer can't be that. Because the answer must be Jesus, the Messiah, the promise is a reference to Christ and his sacrifice. How do we know that? Because the context is Christ and his sacrifice. Jesus is the mediator. He becomes the mediator by his own death, a death where he pays the ransom. Jesus dies as a a ransom for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. What are the transgressions under the first covenant? Every single law that was ever broken. You mean Jesus can buy back every single transgression that was made under the first covenant? The writer says yes. A death that paid the ransom. For where there is a testament, he says in verse 16, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Here's what he does. He takes a metaphor, if you will, of the very real world in which they live. Many of you know that in October, my mother died. In November, my brother died. In December, my aunt died. What all of them had in common is they died intestate. Do you know what that means? It means without a will. My mother didn't have a will. My brother didn't have a will. My aunt didn't have a will. And when you die intestate without a will, then you're left with the family to try and figure out what it is that the person wants. In the ancient world, it says, for where there is a testament, there must also be the death of a testator. Let me explain it to you. What is a testament? It's an agreement between two people. What is a testator? The person who communicates his or her will. 
There's some debate whether the word should be translated testament or covenant. The New King James translates this for where there is a testament. And the reason why the New King James does that, it seems to be because the emphasis is on the one who has made the testament. The writer brings up death and the metaphor of the enforcement and a testament that's binding upon death. And so that's why I think the testament is the right translation. And so in this illustration or this metaphor, for where there is a testament, this is an agreement between two people, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. What is the testament? The testament is the agreement that God makes with human beings. So here's the testament. God says, you're in trouble. And the human being says, you're right. (laughs) God says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to find a way to forgive you. I'm going to find a way to cleanse you. I'm going to find a way so that you get cleansed on the inside of your conscience that you receive, you become the recipient of forgiveness. Not just simply the recipient of forgiveness, but the kind of forgiveness that opens the door of conversation between you and I. Not just conversation between you and I, but relationship and fellowship between you and I so that we can be together forever. Well, what's it going to take? I'm going to have to send someone. And now we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he was speaking to the religious leader, Nicodemus. And he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The writer, and so in the illustration, Jesus is the testator. Jesus made his will. This brings us maybe to the title, the Lord's last will and testament. What is the Lord's will? You know what? When my mother died, she wasn't a wealthy woman by any stretch of the imagination. I was happy to receive family pictures. I was happy not to receive anything, but, but my expectation was that I'm, I'm going to have to pay in order to bury my mother. I had no expectation of receiving anything from my mother's estate. I had no expectation of receiving anything from my brother's estate. I had no expectation of receiving anything from my aunt's estate. But imagine Jesus comes... And he says, well, let's put it a little bit differently. Imagine God comes. And the Lord God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, says, hey, guess what? My son Jesus has died. And do you realize that you're a beneficiary? He's listed you as a beneficiary. What do you mean? Don't you want to know? 
Imagine the Lord shows up and he says, hey, I just need you to know that my son has died and he's left you. What? What did he leave me? And the Lord says, he left you everything. He left it all to you. What do you mean? Well, I know that you don't necessarily understand this, but I have made my son king of heaven and earth. I have made my son, I've established an everlasting throne for him. I have provided my son everything, everything that exists, it belongs to him. And guess what? He, I've also given you to him. And and guess what he decided to do? He decided to give you back to me. And in order to do that, you have to receive forgiveness and grace and cleansing. Jesus, think about this for just a moment. For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator. In this illustration, Jesus is the testator. Jesus has made his will. Jesus has died and sealed his will in his own blood. But then something amazing has happened. He's come back from the dead and he's the executor of his own will. Many years before my mother died, she said, I'm going to leave you in charge of everything. And I said, Mom, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But when she, before she died, she actually changed the executor to my sister's, which is fine. That was his, her, her wishes. Her wishes were for my sisters to execute her wishes, but she didn't leave any wishes. So you can imagine how difficult it is to execute a person's wishes when they don't leave clear instructions on what to do. But Jesus is left clear instructions on what to do. And in verse 17, it says, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Listen carefully. In ancient times, a will did exactly what it did in the present time. What is a testament? An agreement between two people. What is a testament? The express wishes of a person. So prior to death, think about this for just a moment. Prior to a person's death, can a will be changed? Can it be amended? Can it be altered? Can it be destroyed? Can it be lost? All of those things could happen. But once the testator is dead, once the testator is dead, Whatever the last will is the one that's in force. And so what's the one that's in force? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. To the religious leaders in John 8, he says, unless you believe that I am who I say that that I am, you're going to perish in your sin. What's his last will? His last will is that none perish, but all have eternal life. Can a person distribute property before death? Yeah. But again, the point seems to be in the metaphor, 
that part of the point of the testament is to reflect the wishes of the person. The author seems to be making the point that the spiritual benefits are distributed after the death of the Lord Jesus. So what is the Christian supposed to receive? Forgiveness of sin? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. A future kingdom? Yes. So here's the Lord. Hey, Jesus has died and he's left you everything. What exactly specifically have I gotten here? Well, forgiveness of sin. Eternal life. A future kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 18 we read, But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Do you remember what Jesus said to his own disciples in John chapter 14? I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. What, what are you saying? I'm coming back for you. Later, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 28, will say, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, tell tell me again what I'm getting. You're getting it all. You're getting all of it. What do you mean? Well, you know what? I know it's come as a surprise to you, but I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. I'm the creator of the universe. Everything exists. It exists for me. What do you want to do with all this stuff? I want to share it with you. In verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept of all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself. The book, by the way, in this instance is the commandment of the Torah, the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy. It was the sum and the substance of the revelation that has been given and saying this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Where did he say that? In Exodus chapter 29 verse 12. He repeats it in verse 36. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. So what's he doing? The word of the revelation itself is covered with blood. The tabernacle is sprinkled with blood. The vessels inside of the tabernacle are sprinkled with blood. We don't have time to talk about it. But the tabernacle becomes a picture of Jesus. The instruments inside of the tabernacle become instruments that point to Jesus. In verse 22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Why is this important? The phrase shedding of blood translates one very long Greek word. And by long, I mean 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 letters. It's found only here in the Greek New Testament. Shedding of blood is a single word. 
One Bible scholar says, the main point is that the giving of life is the necessary presupposition if the remission of sins. This was prefigured in the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, but what could be actualized in the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, has now been established as an eternal truth by the death of Christ. So what does it mean? And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Remission is, is, is an interesting word. The noun is aphesis. That's the noun. It's related to the verb aphemi. Aphemi is the word that is almost throughout the New Testament translated forgiveness. In the noun form, it means to let go. It means to send away. It means to cancel. It means to remit. It means to pardon a debt. It means to make whatever is owed go away. Now imagine a person says, I want a religion. Where no one has to die. I want a religion where there's a God in heaven who accepts me the way that I am. And who's willing to deal with me the way that I am. Imperfect, flawed, broken. And you see, this has always been the dilemma of the Bible and humanity. How do I come to God? How do I have a relationship with God? And there's quite frankly always been two ways. God's way and man's way. God's terms and human terms. The noun was used in secular Greek, but also in the Septuagint, to release from captivity. It came to mean pardon. It came to mean the cancellation of an obligation or a punishment or guilt. Sometimes the word translated remission is sometimes translated forgiveness. Imagine a person says... I want to be forgiven. I want my sin to go away. And I want it to go away forever. Okay, God's made a remedy to do exactly that. It's for you to trust in Christ. I don't want to trust in Christ. Tell me again what it is that you want. I want my sins to go away. You want your sins to go away, but you're not willing to trust Christ and you're not willing to trust his sacrifice. In other words, you're not willing to come to God on God's terms. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood, the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Sin has always had a solution. Blood. Salvation has always been by blood. But I want you to think about this. Salvation has always been by blood, but the blood must be innocent, verse 14. It must be shed, verse 22. It must be applied, verse 22. Not just any blood. If I die, will that make God happy? Sure, if you're innocent. Well, I'm innocent of most things. No, 
you have to be innocent of everything. Are you innocent of everything? You see, the blood has to be innocent. It has to be shed. It has to be applied. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loves us and washed us from our sin in his own blood, it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always by a person. In Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 it says salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is always by grace. For by grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any person should boast. Titus 2.11 For the grace, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Paul says that grace isn't just simply a theological concept made by religious people, but Jesus himself is the manifestation and the expression of grace. Salvation is always by blood. It's always by a person. It's always by grace. The grace is preceded by the sinner's faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And again, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so in verse 23, it says, therefore, it was necessary It was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What is the writer saying? The Mosaic law, the Levitical law, presented to the people of Israel a picture of the heinousness of sin the horror of sin, the terrifying consequences of sin, and the extraordinary links that would be necessary in order to make sin go away. You see, Jesus isn't simply a better priest, although he is. He doesn't just simply go to a better place, but he does. He offers Better blood. In what sense? The old blood could only cover. The old blood could only cleanse the outward impurities that we picked up as we walked through life. His bloodshed? Full. Final. Complete. We're going to look at the rest of this passage When we come back, I thought I would be able to finish it. But there's enough in verse 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28 that I will be able to share some more important things. So we're going to pause here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Again, Lord, we thank you for the new covenant. The new covenant 
better than the old covenant. Because we have not limited access, but unlimited access. Not because we have a temporary solution, but because we have a permanent solution. Lord, because you've always intended that salvation would come by a person. That salvation would come by blood, a sacrifice. And that salvation would always come by grace. And Lord, for that person who who wonders whether or not all of this is true, Lord, we pray that with very deep care and a profound commitment to the authority and the integrity of the revelation of God that's given in the Bible, that we would come to believe exactly what you've said about yourself and that we would come to believe exactly what you've said about your son and we would come to believe exactly what you've said concerning the solution to the problem of sin. Trusting Jesus, believing Jesus, loving Jesus. And so again, Lord, we commit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.